0: Hello, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, and it's particularly pleasant to be able to actually speak to real three-dimensional people um, for a change after, after many months of, of Zoom meetings. So thank you for the opportunity. Um, so two preliminary points. So I lead the Law and the Future of War Research Group at the University of Queensland. Um, We work very closely with the Trusted Autonomous Systems, DCRC, and we use Australian government funding to undertake research on some of the legal implications of new military technologies. But having said that, the views that our group expresses and the views that I express here uh, are are mine and mine alone um, and and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Australian um, uh, government. The second uh, preliminary point that I should make is that Uh, I have 30 minutes uh, and we are currently developing a semester long course on the international law implications of emerging military technologies. So I'm trying to sort of condense 13 weeks worth of material into 30 minutes, which is a little bit of a challenge, but uh, hopefully this will will work. So I will touch upon cyber capabilities, uh, robotics and autonomous systems, uh, and biomedical performance enhancement. The first two, because these are probably the areas of technology that have attracted the greatest amount of, of legal interest and legal discussion and legal controversy. Uh, and the third one, because I think it is uh, an important emerging issue, and I happen to be uh, one of the I don't know, five people in the world who uh, writes about this from an international law perspective, so as you are stuck with me, I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit as well. Um, so let's kick off with, with cyber capabilities. And it's a bit strange to talk about that perhaps in an emerging technologies context, given that cyber is so ubiquitous and, and has been sort of with us for a long time. But I think it's important to consider cyber because obviously it is an uh, increasingly significant issue, but also because it is a bit of a case study in terms of how um, the law, which in some instances is hundreds of years old, has dealt with new technology and and how it has basically uh, muddled uh, through. Um, The discussion about how international law applies to cyber operations uh, has been going on for about 20 years, but really got kick-started in 2017, 2018, as a result of Um, cyber operations uh, against Estonia and Georgia in particular that were attributable to a large country uh, that will go unnamed. Um, And that triggered a process within NATO to actually figure out what NATO's legal obligations were in relation to cyber operations against NATO member countries, Estonia being a NATO member country. This led to a uh, center being set up in Tallinn, Estonia, the uh, NATO Cooperative Cyber Defense uh, Center of Excellence, which launched a um, consultative process um, using a group of eminent international experts to actually figure out how existing law would apply to cyber operations. And this process led to the Tallinn manuals, version one and version two, which Uh, talk about how the existing law, the law of armed conflict and certain other branches of international law regulate cyber operations. And what is perhaps interesting about that is the extent to which those experts found that the existing law is perfectly capable of applying to a novel uh, technological and operational development. Um, the manual also identified certain areas of concern and uncertainty which then led to numerous governments actually expressing their views on how they think international law governs their activities in, in cyberspace. Australia is one of those states that has made public its uh, views on, on how international law governs cyber operations. Uh, for example, the point that international law is in fact applicable to cyber operations, that the law of armed conflict governs cyber operations undertaken in the context of an armed conflict, and so on and so forth. So while the Tallinn manuals themselves are largely an academic work, um, they are a useful summary of how um, the, the, the law is seen in this context. But perhaps most practically, it triggered a process of self-reflection among states to figure out uh, uh, how they think that international law should uh, apply in the cyber context. Parallel to this have been two processes within the United Nations um, that have also tried to uh, um, figure out what are the rules of responsible state behavior, to use their terminology, uh, in cyberspace. The progress there has been incremental, shall we say. Um, And the conclusions that these groups have uh, have come to have not been uh, uh, very detailed, but there's been some uh, high level uh, commitment to the idea of of the existing legal framework being applicable um, in the cyber context. So where's the law at when it comes to cyber operations? And it's interesting to note that the law is reasonably clear, or there's a reasonable reasonable amount of consensus, when it comes to the really pointy end of cyber operations. So the kinds of operations that cause um, physical damage, either to objects or harm to human beings. And there is a broad consensus that such cyber operations are governed by the existing rules of international law. So for example, if you wanted to um, hack into an enemy commander's um, Wi-Fi connected pacemaker and stop it, uh, that would be an activity that's governed by the same rules of international law as you would apply when actually kinetically targeting um, that person. Um, And the same applies to physical objects, Um, but there haven't actually been that many examples of cyber operations that have led to of kinetic physical outcomes. Perhaps the most commonly mentioned one is the um, Stuxnet virus discovered in 2010, which allegedly was devised by the U.S. and Israeli governments and which allegedly caused a fair bit of physical damage in one of the nuclear enrichment plants operated by um, Iran. But these would be the kinds of scenarios that international law actually doesn't have a big problem dealing with because these are activities that quite closely resemble um, kinetic warfare. Where things get far more challenging is where you have uh, cyber operations that fall below that uh, threshold of physical harm. So what are some of the questions then that we do not have good answers to when it comes to cyber operations? And these are the questions that we need to grapple with Um, going forward as cyber operations become more common. The first of them is perhaps a slightly esoteric question, namely whether data is an object. And the reason for asking this question is that, as you probably well know, um, international law distinguishes between different types of objects and protects certain objects and allows you to target other objects. So the question is, is civilian data, for example, an object that is protected as a civilian object under the existing rules of international law. If it is, then the existing law applies and you can't destroy civilian data, for example, as part of a cyber operation. If data is not an object, then potentially you can do all kinds of things to that data, you can manipulate in, it in various ways. And this is something that the, uh, the folks who developed the Talon manuals disagreed about, there there was no consensus on this issue among that group of experts, and this is a question that seems to be persisting in these uh, these conversations. The second outstanding question is that, okay, so there will be some types of cyber operations that do not meet this attack threshold of causing physical uh, harm to objects or persons. Are they somehow regulated by international law and the law of armed conflict in particular? Some would take the view that they are not, and they would compare such operations to information operations that have been undertaken in the past, and basically say, well, uh, propaganda directed against the enemy's civilian population has always been lawful, so why shouldn't cyber operations launched against the enemy's civilian population uh, be lawful? Others, and I tend to side with that camp, point to a particular rule in the law of armed conflict which requires armed forces to take constant care to spare the civilian population in military operations. And the words military operations go further than just attacks. So there seems to be a generic obligation under the law of armed conflict to avoid harm to civilians, even if that harm doesn't transpire through attacks launched against um, civilians. But there's a degree of ambiguity there. And finally, and this is where things get really tricky, is how does international law deal with cyber operations launched against other states in peacetime? At what point does international law say that, well, a particular type of operation um, is prohibited as a breach of sovereignty, for instance? I think there's a a reasonable degree of agreement that if um, uh, one state were to launch a cyber operation against another state and directly manipulate electronically recorded election results, for instance, that this would be an example uh, of a breach of sovereignty of that state. How about information operations launched against another state with a view to influencing uh, an election outcome but not directly modifying the results. That we don't really have a clear answer to. So there are uncertainties here, and perhaps the, sort of, the takeaway message from this is that we actually have a, a reasonable degree of legal certainty when it comes to sort of, the higher end of cyber operations that cause physical harm in the, in the context of an armed conflict, and we have less certainty, bizarrely, when it comes to cyber operations that might be launched in peacetime and do not cause direct physical harm. Okay, let's talk about robotics and autonomous systems very briefly as well. So, this is a, a discussion that again has in legal circles gone on for quite a while, um, with the initial alarm uh, being sort of aired about uh, remotely controlled um, aerial platforms uh, being used in armed conflicts. But I think the majority view now is that there is nothing really all that special uh, about remotely controlled aerial systems. The use of them in an armed conflict is subject to all the same rules uh, as would apply to um, crude uh, or manned uh, aerial platforms. So that's fairly unproblematic. Things get a little bit trickier when it comes to maritime platforms because um, the definition of a warship which has certain rights um, on the world's oceans, includes the requirement of being crewed. And so the question is that does a warship which doesn't have a crew physically on board, does that qualify um, uh, for the status of warship under international law with all the relevant uh, rights and obligations? But it seems that the view is shifting in the direction of saying, well, If the the system is remotely controlled by a crew, it should still be considered as crewed for the purpose of international law, and such a remotely controlled platform might be um, a a warship. But of course, then things get really thorny when it comes to autonomously navigating platforms. Can an autonomously navigating platform still be considered to be crewed, and hence obtain all the rights and duties uh, of a warship? Not entirely clear. But things get really thorny uh, when it comes to autonomy in weapon systems. And for a good 10 years now, there has been a a, a, a fairly well run and funded international campaign to ban killer robots or fully autonomous weapon systems. Uh, And this has led to um, uh, reports being produced in the UN context um, and for about the last seven years now, um, uh, discussions within one of the UN arms control fora about what to do with autonomy um, in weapon systems. Um, the discussion has been significantly hampered because no one, or there's, there, there's no agreement on what autonomous weapon systems are. And different people take very different views. So, again, as you would well know, autonomy has been present in military systems for a very long time. Seaweed type systems have been used since the 1970s, and they can clearly operate in a very autonomous fashion. And no one really has had any major legal or ethical problems with these types of systems. So the question is, how are potentially novel autonomous weapon systems different, such that they would warrant uh, being banned, as as the civil society movement would argue. Well, um, one approach would be that, well, the new systems that are being developed are offensive, whereas old systems are defensive. Um, that distinction itself doesn't really make much sense in a legal context, um, and of course, that is not really set in stone from an operational perspective as well. The other argument is that, well, this is a... This is only a semi autonomous weapon system. What we are concerned about are fully autonomous weapon systems. But anyone who makes that argument, and if you push them a bit further, they're not really clear about where this line between semi and fully autonomous exactly goes. Particularly as fully autonomous suggests that they are systems that are completely independent of human control. And of course, that's not really um, what we're doing or where we, where we are headed. But leaving that campaign aside, what are the the sort of the the clear legal issues when it comes to autonomous um, weapon systems? So perhaps the principal question is whether such systems can comply with the existing targeting rules of international law, the principle of distinction, the principle of proportionality, and the obligation to take precautionary measures. But that is perhaps asking the wrong question. The question is not so much whether such systems can comply with those rules, but whether the human operators utilizing such systems can comply with those rules. It's not the machine itself that needs to understand and apply the law, it's you guys who actually use that technology on the battlefield or in the battle space. So I think that's already one of the 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 problems with the ongoing debate because there's a tendency to think about autonomous weapon systems as quasi-persons that must somehow follow the law, whereas that's not really the case. It is the combination of technical features of a particular weapon system, uh, the environment, uh, and the decision-making of the the operator that must ensure that no lawful um, outcomes result from the use of a particular um, system. The second question is, what about a particular residual rule in the law of armed conflict called the Martin's Clause, which prohibits things that are contrary to the laws of humanity, or the dictates of public conscience? Some would point to that rule and say, well, the idea of delegating decision making over life and death to machines um, is something that is contrary to the public conscience. But then, of course, then that, that raises questions that, about existing weapon systems where that type of authority has already been, to some degree, um, delegated. And there's no clear answer as to why new weapon systems might be more incompatible with this Martin's Clause than existing weapon systems. And finally, there is now this debate about meaningful human control. So, um, the the, the international debate at the UN has shifted away a little bit from the idea of banning killer robots. And now the conversation is around requiring weapon systems to be under meaningful human control. And of course, that opens uh, the door to all kinds of controversies around what control means and what meaningful means. Uh, Many would suggest that meaningful human control means that every weapon system must have a real-time trigger puller, a person who makes the final targeting decision when force is being applied. But again, as you well know, that is already not the case. There are fire and forget weapon systems where there's quite a lot of both geographical and temporal distance between the person using the weapon and the force actually being applied. So clearly that cannot be uh, a a reasonable interpretation of the requirement of meaningful human control. And so the Australian government in this context, I I think quite uh, reasonably has proposed a concept of a system of control, saying that when it comes to weapon systems, it's, it's not really the person who makes the final decision to to use the weapon or to apply force, um, that is critical. But it's the the entire system that leads up to that point. Starting from the design and procurement phase for the particular weapon system, uh, decisions relating to uh, deploying a particular capability to a particular conflict zone, Um, rules of engagement, um, after action reports, and so on and so forth. So there's a system of things that we have to look at when it comes to meaningful human control, not just the fact, or not just whether there was a human being with a finger on the trigger um, at the very final uh, point. Interestingly, there's also a couple of commonalities between cyber operations and autonomous um, systems that are perhaps worth highlighting. The first of them is that both of them present challenges for what to lawyers are known as Article 36 weapons reviews. So Article 36 refers to a particular provision in Additional Protocol 1 to the Geneva Conventions, which requires states to proactively review whether the weapons that they intend to deploy are compatible with international law. and. Many states, actually not that many to be honest, uh, about 20 states um, have existing procedures on how to do that. The Australian one is often seen as sort of the the, the gold standard. Australia does this very well. Um, But the question is, how do you review a cyber capability or a system that has a, a fair degree of autonomy in its operation? Or to make things even more complicated, how do you review an autonomous cyber capability? And so that will require not so much a change in the law, but potentially a change in the procedures that governments such as Australia use when verifying the legal compliance um, of the weapon systems that they they choose to, to use. The second problem is attribution. This is sort of a perennial problem with cyber operations because it's often not entirely clear where a particular cyber operation is coming from. So what is the source of that operation? which leads to these awkward conversations about whether a certain government was actually responsible for a cyber operation, or whether it was simply hacktivists in the territory of that country that were responsible uh, for a cyber operation. Um, There are forensic ways in which um, cyber operations can increasingly be attributed, uh, but it still remains a bit of a practical problem in terms of holding states to account for their cyber conduct. And interestingly, the same problem manifests itself when it comes to autonomous systems as well. Particularly if you have large numbers of disposable uh, autonomous systems um, that you can, for example, um, deploy as fo- in the form of swarms in, in, in conflict, it can become quite difficult to tell who is behind the use of that technology. So who do you attribute the particular use of, of, of technology to and who is responsible um, from a legal perspective? So, something to, uh, to worry about, potentially in the future. And finally, um, there's a question of how certain rules of international law continue to apply in circumstances where uh, combatant roles are increasingly overtaken by technology, or to put it differently, where we are increasingly trying to take combat- combatants out of the battle space and put uh, technology in harm's way. So the question is, can we use cyber operations, remotely controlled systems, and autonomous systems in combination to occupy territory, for example? The standard view under international law is no. You need to have boots on the ground in order for a territory to be considered occupied. Uh, But consider, for example, a uh, small and technologically highly advanced country like Singapore where you can cripple the country to a very significant extent by using cyber operations and considering the size of the territory you can control it to a very significant degree by utilizing remotely controlled or autonomous systems why wouldn't the law of international law of occupation apply that is there to basically protect the civilian population of that particular occupied territory so that's, this is this is another Um, a gap or uncertainty about the law, rather, um, as we move uh, forward. Okay, a couple of words about human performance enhancement to, to wrap things up. So what I'm talking about here is the use of bioscientific knowledge or biotechnology to improve some aspect of human performance beyond what is normal in the human population. It doesn't necessarily mean creating super soldiers, as many um, journalists would like to put it in big headlines, but it's rather concerned about tweaking some human characteristic in a way that is militarily or operationally significant. Perhaps the best example of that is the use of central nervous system stimulants, such as amphetamines and modafinil, um, to basically prolong the period of wakefulness, something that we know a number of armed forces around the world um, are doing. But there are, of course, other things that could be done as well. Um, Electromagnetically stimulating the human brain, for example, has been shown to have uh, similar wakefulness boosting um, uh, qualities. Um, So that kind of technology could potentially be used instead of uh, giving individuals drugs. And this goes all the way down to potentially genetic uh, modification. So there are all kinds of legal issues that arise from that, but many of them are really uh, questions of human rights or domestically. So for example, can members of the armed forces be compelled to accept uh, performance enhancing drugs, for instance? In Australia, uh, the, the, the legal framework in which the ADF operates uh, doesn't allow that. Um, medical treatment and medical interventions in the ADF are uh, carried out with, uh, with informed consent. but other armed forces might not have such strict ethical and legal standards. But turning to the law of armed conflict, I should mention that as well before I go to the legal questions, Um, there's also a bit of an overlap between um, developments in human enhancement and developments in robotics. Particularly when it comes to uh, brain-machine interfaces or devices that allow the human brain to communicate directly with computers and through computers with all kinds of different devices. So this technology has been largely pursued in order to develop uh, very advanced prosthetics. Um, So basically uh, artificial limbs that a person can control by thinking about um, moving that particular arm or leg. But the possibilities are, of course, endless. Um, So in this photo, you actually have a commercially available uh, brain machine interface, a device that is worn on the head um, and can be used and can be trained to control a a small quadcopter in flight. We're now at a point where uh, there are competitions where, where different people wear these wear these devices uh, and um, uh, race the the, the the quadcopters all right so what could possibly be problematic about these kinds of interventions and technologies and again I'll just name three the first is it's not entirely clear what this does to individual uh, responsibility of um, the combatants so we already have a couple of prominent indications that we have a problem, a potential problem there. Um, in the early 2000s, there was an incident in Afghanistan where uh, US forces accidentally uh, bombed uh, Canadian troops on exercise, killing four of them. And during the legal proceedings against the two pilots, they claimed that the uh, government provided amphetamines that they were taking were a cause in that particular incident. Um, that defense was rejected by the judge uh, in that particular case, but it does raise a possibility of drugs having an impact on people, which will then um, modify their decision-making abilities to the extent that uh, that they may commit um, offenses. And a, an ongoing example of this issue is um, legal, uh, legal proceedings ongoing in the US, concerning a particular anti-malarial drug, which allegedly had some role to play um, in um, uh, a US uh, Army sniper uh, killing 16 civilians and injuring four more in 2012 or 13, The argument has been made that the particular drug, um, which was approved for use in the US Armed Forces, uh, can cause very serious hallucinations. Um, and in extreme cases have a, a, a very dire impact on a person's behavior. So all these novel methods of human enhancement must be reconciled with individual responsibility, and we need to have some sense of how they might actually adversely impact human performance. The second question is uh, perhaps slightly obscure. It's around um, superfluous injury. So as you know, it is prohibited in an armed conflict to use weapons that cause superfluous injury or unnecessary suffering to the enemy combatants. But what about the circumstances where the enemy combatants have been enhanced, such as to be less likely to bleed or less likely to feel pain? What does that do to then to the existing prohibitions of Existing of exploding uh, and expanding rounds, uh, for example. So, by uh, improving human performance or making humans more re- resilient in armed conflict, that can actually have a downstream effect on the existing rules of international law that are meant to uh, protect combatants from unnecessary harm. And finally, and perhaps this is one of the more practical issues is medical personnel is often used; is often involved in the administration of um, uh, enhancing substances. So to come back to the US example of using um, amphetamines or modafinil uh, to prolong wakefulness, this is done under direct supervision of medical officers uh, in the US forces. But medical officers are protected in an armed conflict if they are exclusively engaged in medical duties. Is the enhancement of the fighting ability of one's own soldiers a protected medical function? Probably not, because the protected medical function, according to international law, is the treatment of the wounded and sick. In other words, by using medical personnel in human enhancement programs, we are jeopardizing their protection under international law. Okay, to wrap up, so now what? So I've identified a bunch of gaps or uncertainties in the law. Uh, so what's going to happen? Well, many have suggested that we need to revise the existing law, adopt new treaties, modify existing ones. The fifth Geneva Convention on Cyber Warfare, an additional protocol to the Conventional Weapons Convention on Autonomous Weapons. I think that's highly unlikely. States simply do not have appetite for additional lawmaking in the law of armed conflict. So this leaves us with the creative interpretation of existing law, which lawyers are reasonably good with, Um, articulation of national positions, as Australia has done in relation to cyber warfare, for example, that will influence the development of unwritten customer international law. And finally, adopting various practical or political solutions. For example, developing new procedures for uh, reviewing um, uh, novel um, weapon systems. So my prediction is that the formal law is unlikely to change. Uh, The the, um, interpretation of the law uh, will involve, and certain practical measures will have to be be taken to ensure that the new technologies we are are using will comply with the law. And finally, um, a bit of shameless (laughs) self-promotion. Uh, but many of the issues that I've addressed are dealt with in more detail by are dealt with in more detail in a podcast that uh, our research group at the University of Queensland produces. This is the Law and the Future of War podcast. It's available on on all your favourite podcasting platforms, um, and where we have conversations with uh, technological, legal, or policy experts trying to unpack some of the issues that I only briefly touched upon in my presentation. Thanks very much. Thanks Ryan. Are there any questions for, for Ryan? You know, you know, but, uh, I guess it's not questions. So, senior months for example, autonomous weather systems line of weight have been around for almost 100 years and largely unregulated. So I guess autonomous weather systems are uh, not a new thing. But then we look at the land warfare environment we have the Iowa Convention. So. What is a landmine versus an autonomous weapon system in the land environment? And how do you see that might be implied or delineation? That's an excellent question. So my view is that um, autonomous weapon systems basically are on a spectrum. from the primitive to the highly advanced, and I would actually think that a landmine falls on that autonomy spectrum at the primitive end. It's a very simple system that can uh, select targets based on their weight, basically, um, and um, and engage that particular target. So I think that they are autonomous weapons. Uh, and they've been prohibited by a number of treaties precisely because they are on the primitive side. They can't tell whether the person stepping on it is a combatant or a a civilian. Um, So that sort of reasoning doesn't necessarily apply to more advanced weapon systems that have the capability of making that particular distinction. And if we think about the underwater warfare context, for example, acoustic signatures can be used very precisely to identify Vessels. So, in that particular context, the concern about the system not being able, technically, to distinguish between different potential objectives, doesn't really apply. Um, but the problem is, in the land context, I suppose, it, you know, what what are the scenarios in which it is conceivable to use weapon systems with a high degree um, of autonomy? And it probably will depend on the capabilities of the system and. The particular environment. So there might be a system that is generally reasonably good at identifying tanks, for example, but it um, sometimes mistakes school buses for tanks. So that type of a system could probably quite legitimately be used in a circumstance where there is... Uh, uh, no likelihood of civilians and school buses being around. But the use of that weapon in an urban context would be legally problematic under the already existing rules. So I think the bottom line is that it's impossible to come up with a one common standard for all autonomous weapon systems and and say, well, these are the ones that are unacceptable because it really depends on how and in what environment are those systems going to be used and what the precise capabilities of those systems are. So I think that the the analysis there is far more nuanced than uh, to ban or not to ban. Not sure whether that helps.